Chapter Five of Widdershins. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by C. J. Casey. Widdershins by Oliver Onions. Chapter Five. Eel. As the young man put his hand to the uppermost of the four brass bell knobs to the right of the fan-lighted door, he paused, withdrew the hand again, and then pulled at the lowest knob. The sawing of bell wire answered him and he waited for a moment, uncertain whether the bell had rung before pulling again. Then there came from the basement a single cracked stroke. The head of a maid appeared in the whitewashed area below, and the head was withdrawn as apparently the maid recognized him. Steps were heard along the hall. The door was opened, and the maid stood aside to let him enter, the apron with which she had slipped the latch still crumpled in her greasy hand. "'Sorry, Daisy,' the young man apologized. "'But I didn't want to bring her down all those stairs.' How is she? Has she been out today? The maid replied that the person spoken of had been out, and the young man walked along the wide carpeted passage. It was cumbered like an antique shop with alabaster busts on pedestals, dusty palms and fans' vases, and trophies of spears and shields and assegai. At the foot of the stairs was a rustling portier of strung beads, and beyond it the carpet was continued up the broad, easy flight secured at each step by a brass rod. Where the stairs made a turn, the fading light of the December afternoon, made still dimmer by a window to calcomany glass, shone on a cloudy green aquarium with sallow goldfish, a number of cacti on a shabby console table, and a large and dirty white sheepskin rug. Passing along a short landing, the young man began the ascent of the second flight. This also was carpeted but with the carpet that had done duty in some dining or bedroom before being cut up into strips of the width of the narrow space between the wall and the handrail. Then, as he still mounted, the young man's feet sounded loud on oilcloth, and when he finally paused and knocked at a door it was on a small landing of naked boards beneath the cold gleam of the skylight above the well of the stairs. "'Come in,' a girl's voice called. The room he entered had a low, sagging ceiling in which shone a low glow of firelight, making colder still the patch of eastern sky beyond the roofs and the cowls and hoods of chimneys framed by the square of the single window. The glow on the ceiling was reflected dully in the old, dark mirror over the mantelpiece. An open door in the farthest corner, hampered with skirts and blouses, allowed a glimpse of the girl's bedroom. The young man set the paper bag he carried down on the littered round table and advanced to the girl who sat in an old wicker chair before the fire. The girl did not turn her head as he kissed her cheek, and he looked down at something that had muffled the sound of his steps as he had approached her. "'Hello, that's new, isn't it, Bessie? Where did that come from?' he asked cheerfully. The middle of the floor was covered with a common jute matting, but on the hearth was a magnificent leopard-skin rug. Mrs. Hepburn sent it up. There was a draught from under the door. It's much warmer for my feet. Very kind of Mrs. Hepburn. Well, how are you feeling today, old girl? Better, thanks, Ed. That's the style. You'll be yourself again soon. Daisy says you've been out today. Yes, I went for a walk, but not far. I went to the museum and then sat down. You're early, aren't you? He turned away to get a chair, from which he had to move a mass of tissue paper patterns and buckram linings. He brought it to the rug. Yes. I stopped last night, late to cash up for Vetter, so he's staying tonight. Turn and turn about. Well, 
Tell us all about it, Bess. Their faces were red in the firelight. Hers had the prettiness the first glance almost exhausts, the prettiness, amazing in its quantity, that one sees for a moment under the light of the street lamps and shops and offices closed for the day. She was short-nosed, pulpy-mouthed, and faunish-eyed, and only the rather remarkable smallness of the head on the splendid thick throat saved her away from ordinariness. He, too, might have been seen in his thousands at the close of any day, hurrying home to Catford or Wallam Green or Tufnell Park to tea in an evening with a girl or up in a billiard-room, or else standing cheaply up west, preparatory to smoking cigarettes from yellowed packets in the upper circle of a music hall. Four inches of white up-and-down collar encased his neck, and as he lifted his trousers with the knee to clear his purple socks, the pair of paper covers showed that protected his cuffs during the day at the office. He removed them, crumpled them up, and threw them on the fire, and the momentary addition to the light of the upper chamber showed how curd white was that superb neck of hers, and how moody and tired her eyes. From his face only one would have guessed, and guessed wrongly that his preferences were for billiard-rooms and music-halls. His conversation showed them to be otherwise. It was of polytechnic classes that he spoke, and of the course of lectures in English literature that had just begun, and, as if somebody had asserted that the pursuit of such studies was not compatible with a certain measure of physical development also, he announced that he was not sure that he should not devote, say, half an evening a week on Wednesdays to training in the gymnasium. Mensano in corporizano, Bessie, he said. A sound mind in a sound body, you know. That's tremendously important, especially when a fellow spends the day in a stuffy office. Yes, I think I shall give it half Wednesdays from 8.30 to 9.30. Sends you home in a glow. I was going to tell you about the literature class. The second lecture is tonight. The first is splendid, all about the languages of Europe and Asia. What they call the Indo-Germanic languages, you know. Aryans. I can't tell you exactly without my notes, but the Hindus and Persians, I think it was, that crossed the Himalaya mountains and spread westward somehow, as far as Europe. That was the way it all began. It was splendid, the way the lecturer put it. English is a Germanic language, you know. Then came the Celts. I wish I'd brought my notes. I see you've been reading. Let's look. A book lay on her knees, its back warped by the heat of the fire. He took it and opened it. Ah, Keats! Glad you like Keats, Bessie. We needn't be great readers, but it's important that what we do read should be all right. I don't know him, not really know him, that is, but he's quite all right, A1, in fact, and he's an example of what I've always maintained, that knowledge should be brought within the reach of all. It just shows. He was a sort of a livery stable-keeper, you know. So what he'd have been if he'd really had chances, been to universities and so on, there's no knowing. But, of course, it's more from the historical standpoint that I'm studying these things. Let's have a look. He opened the book where a hairpin between the leaves marked a place. The firelight glowed on the page, and he read, monotonously and inelastically. And as I sat over the light blue hills, there came a noise of revellers, the rills. Into the wide stream came of purple hue, t'was Bacchus and his crew. The earnest trumpet spake in silver thrills, from kissing cymbals made a merry din. T'was Bacchus and his kin, like to a moving vintage down they came, crowned with green leaves and faces all on flame, all madly dancing through the pleasant valley, to scare thee melancholy. It was the wondrous passage from Endymion, of the descent of the wild inspired rabble into India, 
head plucked for a moment at his lower lip, and then with a hmm. What's it all about, Bessie? continued. Within his car a loft young Bacchus stood, trifling his ivy dart and dancing mood, with sidelong laughing, and little reels of crimson wine and brood, his plump white arms and shoulders enough white for Venus's pearly bite. And near him rode Silenus on his ass, tilted with flowers as he did on pass, tipsily quaffing. Hmm. I see. Mythology. That's made up of tales and myths, you know, like Odin and Thor and those, only those are Scandinavian mythology, so it would be observed to take it too seriously. But I think, in a way, things like that do harm. You see, he explained, the more beautiful they are, the more harm they might do. We ought always to show virtue and vice in their true colors. And if you look at it from that point of view, this is just drunkenness. That's rotten. Destroys your body and intellect. As I heard a chap say once, it's an insult to the beast to call it beastly. I joined the Blue Ribbon when I was fourteen. I haven't been sorry for it yet. No. Now there's Vetter. He went off on a bend, as he calls it, last night, and even he says this morning it wasn't worth it. But let's read on. Again he read, with unresilient movement. I saw Osirian Egypt kneel down before the vine wreath crown. I saw parched Abyssinia rouse and sing to the silver cymbals ring. I saw the whelming vintage hotly pierce, O Tartary the fierce, great Brahma from his mystic heaven groans. Hmm. He was a Buddhist god, Brahma was. Mythology again. As I say, if you take it seriously, it's just glorifying intoxication. But I say, I can hardly see. Better light the lamp. We'll have tea first, then read. No, you sit still. I'll get it ready. I know where things are. He rose, crossed to a little cupboard with a sink in it, filled the kettle at the tap, and brought it to the fire. Then he struck a match and lighted the lamp. The chief glass shade was of a foolish corolla shape, clear glass below, shading to pink and deepening to red at the crimped edge. It gave a false warmth to the spaces of the room above the level of the mantelpiece, and Ed's figure, as they turned the regulator, looked from the waist upward as if he stood within that portion of a spectrum screen that deepens to the band of red. The bright concentric circles that spread in rings of red on the ceiling were more dimly reduplicated in the old mirror above the mantelpiece, and the wintry eastern light beyond the chimney hoods seemed suddenly almost to die out. Bessie, her white neck below the level of a lampshade, had taken up the book again, but she was not reading. She was looking over it at the upper part of the grate. Presently she spoke. I was looking at some of those things this afternoon at the museum. He was clearing from the table more buckram linings and patterns of paper, numbers of Mira's journal in the delineator. Already on his way to the cupboard he had put aside a red bodice dressmaker's shape of wooden wire. What things? he asked. Those you're reading about. Greek, aren't they? Oh, the Greek room. But those people, Bacchus and those, weren't people in the ordinary sense. Gods and goddesses, most of them. Bacchus was the god. That's what mythology means. I wish sometimes our course took in Greek literature. But it's a dead language after all. German's more good in modern life. It would be nice to know everything, but one has to select, you know. Hello, I clean forgot. I brought you some grapes, Bessie. Here they are, in this bag. I'll have them after tea, what? But... She said again after a pause, still looking at the grate. 
They had their priests and priestesses and followers and people, hadn't they? It was their things I was looking at. Combs and brooches and hairpins and things to cut their nails with. They're all in a glass case there. And they had safety pins exactly like ours. Oh, they were a civilized people, said Ed cheerfully. It all gives you an idea. I only hope you didn't tire yourself out. You'll soon be all right, of course, but you have to be careful yet. We'll have a clean tablecloth, shall we? She had been seriously ill. Her life had been despaired of, and somehow the young polytechnic student seemed anxious to assure her that she was now all right again, or soon would be. They were to be married as soon as things brightened up a bit, and he was very much in love with her. He watched her head and neck as he continued to lay the table, and then, as he crossed once more to the cupboard, he put his hand lightly in passing on her hair. She gave so quick a start that he too started. She must have been very deep in a reverie to have been so taken by surprise. "'I say, Bessie, don't jump like that!' he cried with involuntary quickness. Indeed, had his hand been red-hot, or ice-cold, or taloned, she could not have turned a more startled, even frightened face to him. "'It was your touching me,' she muttered, resuming her gazing into the grate. He stood looking anxiously down on her. It would have been better not to discuss her state, and he knew it, but in his anxiety he forgot it. That jumpiness is the effect of your illness, you know. I shall be glad when it's all over. It's made you so odd. She was not pleased that he should speak of her oddness. For that matter, she too found him odd, at any rate, found it difficult to realize that he was as he always had been. He began to irritate her a little. His club-footed reading of the verses had irritated her, and she had tried hard to hide from him that his cocksure opinions and the tone in which they were pronounced jarred on her. It was not that she was better than he, knew any more than he did, didn't, she supposed, love him still the same. These moods, that dated from realness, had nothing to do with those things. She reproached herself sometimes that she was subject to such doldrums. "'It's all right, Ed, but please don't touch me just now,' she said. He was in the act of leaning over her chair, but he saw her shrink and refrained. "'Poor old girl,' he said sympathetically. "'What's the matter?' "'I don't know. It's awfully stupid of me to be like this, but I can't help it. I shall be better soon if you leave me alone.' "'Nothing's happened, has it? Only those silly dreams I told you about.' "'Bother the dreams!' muttered the polytechnic student. During her illness she had had dreams, and had come to herself at intervals to find Ed or the doctor, Mrs. Hepburn or her aunt, bending over her. These kind, solicitous faces had been no more than a glimpse, and then she had gone off into the dreams again. The curious thing had been that the dreams had seemed to be her vivid waking life, and the other things, the anxious faces, the details of a dingy bedroom, the thermometer under her tongue had been the dream. And though she had come back to actuality, the dreams had never quite vanished. She could remember no more of them than that they seemed to hold a high singing and jocundity, issuing from some region of haze and golden light, and they seemed to hover ever on the point of being recaptured, yet ever eluding all her mental efforts. She was living now between reality and a vision. She had fewer words than sensations, and it was a little pitiful to hear her vainly striving to make clear what she meant. "'It's so queer,' she said, 
It's like being on the edge of something, a sort of tiptoe. I can't describe it. Sometimes I could almost touch it with my hand, and then it goes away, but never quite away. It's like something just past the corner of my eye, over my shoulder, and I sit very still sometimes, trying to take it off its guard. But the moment I move my head, it moves too, like this. Again he gave a quick start of the suddenness of her action. Very stealthily her faunish eyes had stolen sideways. And then she had swiftly turned her head. Here, I say, don't, Bessie, he cried nervously. You look awfully uncanny when you do that. You're brooding, he continued. That's what you're doing, brooding. You're getting into a low state. You want bucking up. I don't think I shall go to the Polytech tonight. I shall stay and cheer you up. You know, I really don't think you're making an effort, darling. His last words seemed to strike her. They seemed to fit in with something of which she, too, was conscious. Not making an effort. She wondered how he knew that. She felt in some vague way that it was important that she should make an effort. For while her dream ever evaded her, and yet never ceased to call her with such a voice as he who reads on a magic page of the calling of elves hears steely in his brain, yet somehow behind the subjection was another and a sterner voice. There is warning as well as fascination. Beyond that edge at which she strained on tiptoe, mingled with the jocund calls to hasten, hasten, were deeper calls that bade her beware. They puzzled her. Beware of what? Of what danger? And of whom? How do you mean I'm not making an effort, Ed? She asked slowly, again looking into the fire, where the kettle now made a gnat-like singing. Why, an effort to get all right again? To be as you used to be. As, of course, you will be soon. As I used to be? The words came with a little check in her breathing. Yes, before all this. To be yourself, you know. Myself? All jolly, without all these jerks and jumps. Wish you could get away. A fortnight by the sea would do you all the good in the world. She knew not what it was in the words, the sea, that caused her suddenly to breathe more deeply. The sea. It was as if, by the mere uttering of them, he had touched some secret spring, what a fulfillment some spell! What had he meant by speaking of the sea? A fortnight before, had somebody spoken to her of the sea, it would have been the sea of Margate, of Brighton, of Southend, that, supplying the image that a word calls up as if by conjuration, she would have seen before her. And what, what other image could she supply? Could she possibly supply now? Yet she did, or almost did, supply one. What new experience had she had? Or what old, old one had been released in her? With that confused, joyous dinning just beyond the range of physical hearing, there had suddenly mingled a new illusion of sound, a vague, vast passion rustle, silky and harsh both at once, its tireless voice holding meanings of stillness and solitude compared with which the silence that is mere absence of sound was vacancy. It was part of her dream, invisible, intangible, inaudible, yet there. As if he had been an enchanter, it had come into being at the word upon his lips. Had he other such words? Had he the master word that— Ah, she knew what the master word would do, would make the vision the reality, and the reality the vision. Deep within her she felt something, her soul, herself, she knew not what, thrill and turn over and settle again. The sea, she repeated in a low voice. Yes, that's what you want, set you up. Rather, 
Do you remember that fortnight in Littlehampton, you and me and your aunt? Surely that was. I like Littlehampton. It isn't flush like Brighton, and Margate's always so beastly crowded. And do you remember that afternoon by the windmill? I did love you that afternoon, Bessie. He continued to talk, but she was not listening. She was wondering why the words the sea were somehow part of it all. The pins and brooches of the museum, the book on her knees, the dream. She remembered a game of hide-and-seek she had played as a child, in which cries of, Warm, warm, warmer, had announced the approach to the hidden object. Oh, she was getting warm, positively hot. He had ceased to talk and was watching her. Perhaps it was the thought of how he had loved her that afternoon by the windmill that had brought him close to her chair again. She was aware of his nearness, and closed her eyes for a moment as if she dreaded something. Then she said quickly, "'Is tea nearly ready, Ed?' And, as he turned to the table, took up the book again. She felt that even to touch the book brought her warmer. It fell open at a page. She did not hear the clatter Ed made at the table, nor yet the babbler's words it evoked, or the pierrot and banjos and minstrels of Margate and Littlehampton. It was to hear a gladder, wilder tumult that she sat once more so still, so achingly listening. The earnest trumpets spake in silver thrills from kissing cymbals made a merry din. The words seemed to move on the page, and her eyes another light, then the firelight seemed to play. Her breast rose, and in a thick white throat a little inarticulate sound twanged. "'Eh? Did you speak, Bessie?' Ed asked. "'stopping in his buttering of bread. "'Eh, uh, no.' "'And answering, her head had turned for a moment, "'and she had seen him. "'Suddenly it struck her with force. "'What a shaving of a man he was! "'Dusk-chested, weak-necked, "'conscious of his little important lip and chin. "'Yes, he needed a polytechnic gymnastic course. "'Then she remarked how once, on Margate, "'she had seen him in the distance.' as in a hired baggy bathing-dress he had bathed from a machine, in muddy water, one of a hundred others, all rather cold, flinging a polo-ball about and shouting stridently, A sound mind and a sound body! He was rather vain of his neat shoes, too, and doubtless stunted his feet. And she had seen the little spot on his neck caused by the chafing of his collar-stud. No, she did not want him to touch her, just now at any rate. His touch would be too like a betrayal of another touch. Somewhere, sometime, somehow, in that tantalizing dream that refused to allow itself either to be fully remembered or quite forgotten. What was that dream? What was it? She continued to gaze into the fire. Of a sudden she sprang to her feet with a choked cry of almost animal fury. The fool had touched her, carried away doubtless by the memory that afternoon by the windmill he had, and passing once more to the kettle, crept softly behind her and put a swift burning kiss on the side of her neck. Then he had retreated before her, stumbling against the table and causing the cups and saucers to jingle. The basket chair tilted up, but righted herself again. "'I told you! I told you!' she choked, her stockish figure shaking with rage. "'I told you! You—' He put his elbow up as if to ward off a blow. "'You touch me! You! You!' The words broke from her. He put himself further around the table. He stammered. "'Here, touch it all, Bessie! What is the matter?' "'You touch me!' "'Right,' he said sullenly. "'I won't touch you again. No fear. I didn't know you were such a firebrand.' 
All right, drop it now. I won't again. Good Lord! Slowly the white fist she had drawn back sank to her side again. All right, now, he continued to grumble resentfully, you needn't take on so. It said, I won't touch you again. Then, as if he remembered that after all she was ill and must be humored, he began, while her bosom still rose and fell rapidly, to talk with an assumption that nothing much had happened. Come, sit down again, Bessie. The tea's in the pot, and I'll have it ready in a couple of jiffs. What a ridiculous little girl you are to take on like that. I'll say, listen, that's a muffin, Bill, and there's a grand fire for toast. You sit down while I run out and get him. Give me your key so I can let myself in again. He took her key from her bag, caught up his hat, and hastened out. But she did not sit down again. She was no calmer for his quick disappearance. In that moment, when he had recoiled from her, she had had the expression of some handsome and angered snake, its hood puffed, ready to strike. She stood dazed. One would have supposed that that ill-advised kiss of his had indeed been the master word she sought, the word she felt approaching, the word to which the objects of the museum, the book, the rustle of the sea she had never seen, had been but the ever-warming stages. Some merest trifle stood between her and those elfin cries, between her and that thin golden mist in which faintly seen shapes seemed to move, shapes almost of tossed arms, waving, brandishing objects strangely all but familiar. That roaring of the sea was not the rushing of her own blood, but in her ears, that rosy flush not the artificial glow of the cheap red lampshade. The shapes were almost as plain as if she saw them in some clear but black mirror, the sounds almost as audible as if she heard them through some not very thick muffling. "'Quick, the book!' she muttered. But even as she stretched out her hand for it, again came that solemn sound of warning. As if something sought to stay it, she had deliberately to thrust her hand forward. Again the high, dinning calls of, "'Hasten! Hasten!' were mingled with that deeper, "'Beware!' She knew in her soul that, once over that terrible edge, the dream would become the reality, and the reality the dream. She knew nothing of the fluidity of the thing called personality, not a thing at all, but a state, a balance, a relation, a resultant of forces so delicately in equilibrium, that a touch and poof! The horror of formlessness rushed over all. As she hesitated, a new light appeared in the chamber. Within the frame of the small square window, Beyond the ragged line of the chimney-cowls, an edge of orange brightness showed. She leaned forward. It was the full moon, rusty and bloated and flattened by the earth-mist. The next moment her hand had clutched at the book. "'Whence came ye, merry damsels? Whence came ye, so many and so many in such glee? Why have ye left your bowers desolate, your lutes and gentler fate?' We follow Bacchus, Bacchus on the wing, a conquering. Bacchus, young Bacchus, good or ill betide. We dance before him through kingdoms wide. Come hither, lady fair, and join the bee. To our wild minstrels thee. There was an instant in which darkness seemed to blot out all else. Then it rolled aside, and in a blaze of brightness was gone. It was gone, and she stood face to face with her dream, that for two thousand years had slumbered in the blood of her and her line. She stood with mouth agape and eyes that hailed, her thick throat full of suppressed clamor. The other was the dream now, and these, they came down, mad and noisy and bright, 
Menides, Thyades, Satyrs, Fauns, naked in hides of beasts, ungirded, disheveled, wreathed, garlanded, dancing, singing, shouting. The thudding of their hooves shook the ground, and the clash of their timbrels and the rustling of their thyrsi filled the air. They brandished frontal bones, the dismembered quarters of kids and goats. They struck the bronze cantharus. They tossed the silver oba up aloft. Down a cleft of rocks and woods they came, trooping to a wide seashore with the red of the sunset behind them. She saw the evening light on the sleek and dappled hides, the gilded ivory and rich brown of their legs and shoulders, the white of inner arms held up on high, their wide red mouths, the quivering of the twin flesh gelts on the necks of the leaping fawns. And shutting out the glimpse of sky at the head of the deep ravine, the god himself descended, with his car full of drunken girls who slept with the serpents coiled about them. Shouting and moaning and frenzied, leaping upon one another with libidinous laughter and beating one another with a half-stripped thirsty. They poured down to the yellow sands and the anemonied pools of the shore. They raced to the water, that gleamed pale as knocker in the deepening twilight in the eye of the evening star. They ran along its edge over their images in the wet sand, calling their lost companion. Hasten, hasten, they cried, and one of them, a young man with a torso noble as the dawn and shoulder lines strong as those of the eternal hills, ran here and there, calling her name. "'Louder! Louder!' she called back in an ecstasy. Something dropped and tinkled against the fender. It was one of her hairpins. One side of her hair was in a loose tumble. She threw up the small head on the superb thick neck. "'Louder! I cannot hear! Once more!' The throwing up of her head that had brought down the rest of her hair had given her a glimpse of herself in the glass over the mantelpiece. For the last time that formidable beware sounded like thunder in her ears the next moment she had snapped with her fingers the ribbon that was cutting into her throbbing throat he with a torso on those shoulders was seeking her how should he know her in that dreary garret in those joyless habiliments he would as soon know his own in that crimson bodiced wire-framed dummy by the window yonder her fingers clutched at the tawdry mercerized silk of her blouse there was a rip and her arms and throat were free. She panted as she tugged at something in the cave with a short click, click, as of steel fastenings. Something fell against the fender. These also. She tore at them, and kicked them as they lay about her feet, as these lie about the trunk of a tree in autumn. Ah! And as she stood there, as if within the screen of a spectrum that deepened to the band of red, her eyes fell on the leopard skin at her feet. She caught it up, and in doing so saw purple grapes. Purple grapes that issued from the mouth of a paper bag on the table. With a dappled pelt about her, she sprang forward. The juice spurted through them into the mass of her loosened hair. Down her body there was a spilth of seeds and pulp. She cried hoarsely aloud, Once more, oh, answer me, tell me my name! Ed's steps were heard on the oilcloth portion of the staircase. My name, oh, my name! she cried in an agony of suspense. Oh, they will not wait for me. They've lighted the torches. They run up and down the shore with torches. Oh, cannot you see me? Suddenly she dashed to the chair in which a litter of linings and tissue paper lay. She caught up a double handful and crammed them on the fire. They caught and flare. There was a call upon the stairs and the sound of somebody mounting in haste. Once, only once, my name— the soul of the bacchanate rioted, struggled to escape from her eyes. Then, as the door was flung open, she heard and gave a terrifying shout of recognition. 
I hear, I was here, but once more. Eo, 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 eo. Ed in the doorway stood for one moment agape, the next ignorant of the full purport of his own words. Ignorant that though man may come westwards, he may yet bring his worship with him. Ignorant that to make the dream the reality, and the reality of the dream is heaven's dreadfulest favor. And ignorant that, that edge once crossed, there is no return to the sanity and sweetness and light that are only seen clearly in the moment when they are lost forever. He had dashed down the stairs, crying in a voice, hoarse and high with terror, She's mad! She's mad! End of chapter 5 Recording by C.J. Casey